got, you've got to like that video. You just got to. I found that, and often, as you may have noticed, that one came from another church. Churches do an incredible job of putting out videos and then put them on YouTube and we're able to get them. And David did a little editing for that, and I really appreciate it. I really want to talk to you today about grace. Now, now here's the metamorphosis that's taking place. Um, scripture's the same. If you want to go and take your Bibles, kind of like an Old Testament scripture, a little bit hard to find. Uh, 2 Samuel, I'll give you a hint. It's right after 1 Samuel. That's all you're going to get, okay? So you got 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going 1 through 13 today, okay? And so, so the, first, the, the first sermon title was, because it was in the Old Testament, Old Grace. And I said, well, that, that fits really nicely. That's good. And then as I studied and looked at the scripture, and I said, well, you know, I like, I like, I like surprised by grace. Because grace, as you're going to see, is really a surprising thing. And then I studied just a little bit more and ended up with crazy grace. Because grace, well, yes, it's amazing. We got the song. But grace really is crazy. Now, here's the deal. I am certain that most of us, you know, if I said grace was great, you say amen, and we could all break into and know at least the first verse of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, we could do that. And, and probably most of us could pull from the air that grace is defined, at least in a broad sense, as God's unmerited favor. We could probably even do that. But I really want, and boy, does he do a good job. You know, God, in his, his great mercy, put this wonderful story in the Old Testament that just like an artist that takes a picture, uh, a brush, and starts painting a picture and painting a picture of grace in the Old Testament. It's just a really incredible, incredible scripture as we look at grace. And, you know, and grace is God's unmerited favor. Um, and, and grace is, uh, grace is also actions. Like, for instance, you exercise grace today at least twice. At least some of you did. And that is, the Bible talks about, in, the, in 1 or 2 Corinthians, about, about grace being giving. The, the grace to give. So there is a grace that allows action to take place. Some of you have showed grace by loving those who are not very loving. Some of you have showed grace by caring about those who really are difficult to care for. Each one of us have exercised some kind of grace in different ways. But here's the way. We're not blown away by it. We're not. And I'm going to tell you why. I, I really think this is why. We expect God to be gracious. I mean, you know, God is great and God is good. And, of course, let us thank Him for our food, okay? But, but grace, we expect God to be great. And, and there comes this spirit of expectation that, yeah, God, of course your grace is amazing because you're God. And that's just too bad. It's kind of like the guy who's married to the lady who just over time just starts taking advantage and takes advantage of, and really just an expectation sets in the marriage. And what she used to do blows him away or used to blow him away and now it doesn't anymore. That spirit of expectation. And I'm hoping, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that if you're here today and someone invited you to church or they said, I'll buy your lunch if you'll come, or your mom put the thumb on you, the guilt trip and said, I hope you'll come. You know, whatever reason you're here today, if you've never really heard about God's grace, okay, maybe somebody told you that you go to heaven, there's this giant scale, and you got to work, 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 and hopefully the scales will tip in your favor and you get to go to heaven. I've got a better message than that. I've got the true message. It's about God's amazing grace. Maybe that's you today. But I hope all of us will take home a greater appreciation of God's amazing, wonderful grace. That's my goal today. Now, this is a story about David. 
and about a guy named Mephibosheth. Now, I'm going to have to say that about 28 times today, so hang with me if I start slurring it. It's got anything more than three syllables, I wrestle with. I did a wedding at San Domino. Anyway, it's got four syllables. I'm out of love. I just, it just doesn't work. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And Mephibosheth has a whole lot more than that. So we'll see what happens. But let me give you the backstory because the backstory is really important. The, the major player is, is David and this, and this guy named Mephibosheth. And so here's the backstory. A lot of it you know. There was, um, Saul was the king and he started hearing rumors. And the rumor was true. There's a rumor that a new king had been anointed by the prophet in Israel. And of all people, it's the son of Jesse. And not only the son of Jesse, it's the youngest son of Jesse. Okay? Should not have been. I mean, it shouldn't have happened. The, the big tall guy, nah. The guy with the broad shoulders, no. And kept going and finally got down to David. And David's this ruddy kid. And, and God said, that's the one. Anoint him. And so there's this rumor floating around with Saul that someone had been anointed the new king of Israel. And then this guy, unknown to, to Saul at this time, this kid shows up. His dad sends him up to the front line because there's a war going on to check on the brothers and take them some cheese, of all things. Okay, So he takes some cheese to him. And, and he gets there and there's this nine-foot giant. Does that story ring a bell? A nine-foot giant they're named... Goliath, okay? And so there's Goliath, and he's just like talking, trash-talking God and trash-talking the Israelites, and they're all hiding behind their rocks. And so David says, well, I'll take him on. So he walks out there with a sling and some stones and winds it up and lets her fly and hits old Goliath right in the forehead. He falls down. He runs over and takes the, his Goliath sword and whacks his head off and holds his head up. And like, wow, how cool is that? So at this time, Saul's pretty happy. But then they go back into town, and, 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 you know, it's like a cheer, it's like a pep rally, you know, kind of thing. Here comes Saul in, riding on his horse, and they're all going, Rose, there's Saul! Yay, Saul! Yay, Saul! Saul was killed his thousands! And it was all cool. And then David came in. And David comes in, and they go, Yay, David! Yay, David! David's killed his ten thousands! And what happened? Saul got way jealous because no one trumps the king. So this jealousy started brewing. Well, Saul had a, a, a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan was probably older than David, but they became really, I mean, really, really fast friends. I mean, they, they really had this, this, this guy thing going on relationshiply. relationshiply. Write that one down, Beck, if you're over there. I think she might be back in the nursery. You know, the relationship was going on. They really knit their souls together. It's really cool. And, and we know this. They, we know they made a covenant. And here's what I found out in my study for this message, that covenants generally involve some kind of bloodshed. And most likely, I, again, understand this is not in the Word of God. I'm drawing culturally, not from the Word of God. But, but culturally... Men, when they made a covenant, would shed some blood somehow. And often it was between two men. They would cut their forearms and then they would take and sprinkle rock dust in the wound. And what that did was it caused the wound not to heal well. And there would be a scar left there. And that scar was a reminder to the two men that they had made a covenant. Well, Jonathan and David made a covenant together. And this is it, basically. Their souls were knit together. But Jonathan said, I just know you're going to be the king one day. And when you become the king, would you please show kindness to my family? 
So we think that's kind of what happened. We know the covenant was possibly involving the bloodshed. Well, anyway, so Saul gets more and more jealous. He's jealous now because his son has a great relationship with the guy he's jealous of. I mean, it's just really going south bad. Finally, David goes on the run. Saul's chasing him like a dog, chasing, chasing, chasing him. And finally, um, King Saul and Jonathan are killed in a battle. Okay, And David becomes half king. And then, and then Jonathan's son controlled the other half of the kingdom, Judah and Israel. And finally, this guy's killed, and David becomes king over all of Judah and Israel. So he, that's where we pick up the story. It's all done. He's secure now as his kingship, and he's sitting there. And I really like what, what one of the commentaries said, and probably not, okay, probably not, but it's a nice thought. So he's sitting there, and he's the king now. Things are secure, and he kind of looks down. And on one of the arms, whichever one he cut, he sees a scar. And that scar reminds him that he made a covenant with a man. And that covenant was that he would show kindness to Jonathan's family after Jonathan was dead and gone. And that's where our story picks up today. That's the backstory. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, And David said, is there, now, he, now, he's just talking in general at this point. He's got some advisors around. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, which, of course, would be the house of Jonathan, that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, you must understand something. He has made a commitment, a promise, a covenant to do something for Jonathan's family. Now he's secure as king. The time has come. Now this made no sense. Here's how it kind of went down. When you became the king, you killed everybody related to the other king. You removed any and all threats of the other kingship. But, but David does something totally different. He said, I want to show kindness. If there's anyone left, I want to show kindness. But do you see why? It wasn't that whoever this person might be, if there were any left, he didn't know at this time, if there's any left, it wasn't like, I want to show kindness because they deserve it. I want to show kindness for my friend Jonathan's sake. The recipient of this kindness had nothing to do with deserving it. It was David keeping a promise and for the sake of Jonathan. Now, you do understand that that's exactly what God has done for us. That God, we are by nature the enemies of God. That we are all worthy of the wrath of God. That's scriptural. That's, that's very clear in scripture. By nature, we are the enemies of God and deserving of the wrath of God. But because God loved us so much, He provided a way. He provided us a Jonathan. And that of course, is Jesus Christ. And it's because of what Jesus Christ did, not because we're worthy, but because of what Jesus Christ did, that God can show kindness to us. And, and the danger is, the longer you are saved, the more you kind of get the mentality that you somehow deserve this thing called salvation. Now, now I know this is true. 
Because I've been saved for 38 years and I know the tendency. I, I serve God. I give my money. I do my thing on Sunday. I do, I do, I do. And somehow we work in our brain that, well, yeah, I know it's about grace, but somehow, somehow God shows his favor upon me because I've been so faithful. There's a word for that in the Greek that we use. It's called lie. It's just a lie. It's all it is. You will never do anything to deserve God's favor. Nothing. It's all by God's amazing grace. So, what time? You said the clock was wrong. Oh, boy, y'all are going to like that clock. Okay, so anyway, so verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And he's a very interesting character. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And said, Yes. He said, I am your servant. Now you did that because, again, Ziba was the... Ziba was the manager of Saul's property. He was a trustee of Saul's property, but he still had an association with Saul. And what did the king do to people who were loyal to Saul? He killed them. Okay, so he goes, I want you to know something. Yes, my name is Ziba, and yes, I'm the trustee of Saul's property, but I'm your man, okay? I want you to understand, you know, I'm on your side. All right, king, I want you to know that. Well, he says in verse 3, And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show? Now, notice the difference in the wording. That I may show the kindness of God to him. So he brings this trustee and says, okay, I don't know. You, of all people, you would know. Is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God? Why do you think the change of wording? Now, this is big, guys. I want you to get this. David had had extended to him the kindness of God. And because he had received the kindness of God, he wanted to extend the kindness of God. David had received grace, therefore he wanted to extend grace. My brothers and sisters, those of you who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, we must learn this lesson. We have forgotten because we go back and we say, well, surely somewhere I've earned the favor of God. And therefore, when people don't have the grace of God or people, you know, that don't act like we do or do what we do, we don't want to extend grace. If you have received grace, you should extend grace. That is true in the family of God. And that is true out of the family of God. People who have experienced grace should extend grace. You better write it down. Because it's probably going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ. There is a test. And Christ is going to know, after we experience God's amazing grace, how in the world could we not extend grace to others? Well, God, they were black and I was white. God, they were poor and I was rich. Oh, but God, they were Catholic and I was Baptist. It just didn't work. Again, not these words probably, but you might hear something like, nah, I don't think so. What else you got? God expects his people of grace to extend grace to others. That includes husbands and wives, children, brothers and sisters in Christ, and the neighbor who plays the loud music at 3 o'clock in the morning. God expects you to extend grace. So Ziba says, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. It, it, you know, he says, Ziba, is there, is there anybody? And this is where, this is so rich, so amazing. 
Verse number three. I'm going to go ahead and read three through five and we'll come back and talk through it. It's just rich. If you're not a note taker, you need to become one right now. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. Now, see, Ziba would have known this because he's the caretaker of the property. There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of, of Amiel at Lodibar. Now, this is so rich. First off, the guy's name, as we're going to learn in the next section of Scripture, is Mephibosheth. The name Mephibosheth means despised one. Despised one. This is not his first name. His daddy gave him another name, but apparently we ended up in Lodibar. We're going to talk about Lodibar in just a moment. He was given a new name, maybe perhaps witness identity you know, protection, you know, went undercover, went underground, or maybe that was just the name that they gave him. The despised one. And you see, the Bible says that he had crippled feet. Now, now let, me, let me give you the background of this. Here's the backstory of this. That day when granddaddy and his daddy um, got killed in battle, Saul and Jonathan were killed, word came back from the battlefront that granddaddy Saul and the crown prince Jonathan were both killed. He was five years old. The nurse understood what would happen. Now, what do kings do? What do new kings do to old kings' relatives? Kill them. Kill them dead. So the nurse picks up Mephibosheth and starts running to hide him somewhere. Now, according to Scripture, and I really, I really appreciate what some person finally got in my head. The Bible says that as she is running away from what she sees as a perceived threat, as she running, running, she trips and falls. And as she trips and falls, Mephibosheth is crippled. And, and now the terminology you see here, crippled in his feet. Now I've always go, she must have been really heavy. <laughs> you know, I can imagine this woman falling on top of this guy. But how did both feet end up injured? And I think this is probably right. He probably got his back broken. He probably was paralyzed from the waist down. It makes sense if you think about it. Okay? So, so he is paralyzed. The nurse doesn't really get it then probably. Picks him up and keeps on running. And later on ends up in Lodibar and hides him in the house of this guy. And that's where he stays. He, that's where he goes underground. But Mephibosheth is now damaged goods. I don't care who your granddaddy was. I don't care who your daddy was. If you're crippled, you're all of a sudden second class. And Mephibosheth in Lodibar was now second class. Now, let me set the stage for you. What do you think the nurse, Tom, what do you think the nurse told Mephibosheth? I saved your life because we had to run. Because David would kill you. I'm sure he didn't hear this once. I ran with you because David was going to kill you. 
I tripped and fell on top of you. And let's just assume, extra biblically, that your back was broken and you are now crippled. It is David's fault that you are crippled. I ran with you because David was going to kill you. You may be crippled, but at least you're alive. If you want someone to blame, it's King David. He was raised with this mentality. He stayed underground. Again, David had no clue where he was. And we're, I, asked, I asked Google how long passed between he was five years old and how long passed before later on David calls for him. We really don't know. Uh, he has a son, but I think that's after David restores him. So probably though, at least five, six, seven years perhaps. He's probably 11, 12, 13 years old when finally he, he is asked for by David. So we see this guy, he's damaged goods, and he's living in where? Lodibar. Now write this down. Lodibar means no food, no grain, no. It just means no. It's hopelessness. Lodibar was the place of hopelessness. Now this is so cool because this isn't the preacher trying to stretch a name to make it work. That's just what it was. One person described it as the Samaritan slums, the worst of the Samaritan slums. It's five miles east of the Jordan in the middle of nowhere, a long way from Jerusalem. And that's where he lived. There were three kinds of people. There was people there who were in Lodibar because of circumstances. People in Lodibar because of choices. And people in Lodibar because of citizenship. Let me explain. Lodibar was a place of hopelessness. Um, outcast and outlaws. Outcast and outlaws. If you're here today and you have never come into relationship with holy God, if the thought and concept of a sacrificial death on a Roman cross by the very Son of God has never come a reality in your life, if you're here today and I were to say, has there been a time when Jesus Christ has impacted your life where you turned from your sin and chose to follow God? You say, nope, I've never done that. Then you are a citizen of Lodibar. You live in a place of hopelessness. You say, Dwight, I don't feel very hopeless. That's because you're not seeing it through spiritual eyes. The Bible says and the Bible teaches very clearly that each person without Jesus Christ, he doesn't care your racial color, he doesn't care your economic situation, he doesn't care how good or how bad you think you are, that every person without Jesus Christ is separated from God and unless something happens to intervene and change that, will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Lodibar represents hopelessness spiritually. And the Bible says we're all there. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. How many? None righteous. No, not one. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how many times you've been dunked. I don't care how much good deeds you think you do. I don't care how much money you put in the pot. Without God's amazing grace exercised through Jesus Christ, His Son on the cross, you'll be eternally separated from God. So some of you are citizens of Lodibar. I was. Until October 26, 1975. And that's when God brought me out of Lodibar. He saved my soul. He forgave my sins. Some of you are living in Lodibar. And your citizenship is not there. But your choices have put you there. 
You've made some really, really incredibly bad choices. Now, you're, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You understand the concept of grace. You understand the concept of, of God's wrath being poured out on the Son of God. There is a point in your time when you knew you became a Christ follower. But somewhere along the way, you made some incredibly stupid choices. It may have been drugs. It may have been alcohol. It may have been an affair. It may have been, it may have been, you know, it may have been a career choice. But today you find yourself, even though you're in church, you find yourself in a place where you feel, you feel spiritually hopeless. You want to be an overcomer, but you feel like you can't. You want to be victorious, and you feel like you can't. Sometimes it's just crazy stuff, like some little idiosyncrasy spiritually in our lives. Like gossip, it's still sin, but people say, well, that's not a big sin, but you know it holds you in bondage. Something, something against the Word of God is holding you in Lodibar today, and you're there by choice. And some of you have been swept into Lodibar by circumstances. You had nothing to do with it. Some of you have recently felt the pangs of death of a loved one. And you find yourself in a place where another land where it seems so hopeless and so dark. Some of you, last two weeks ago, through no fault of your own, you got the pink slip. And you've got three kids to feed. You have no idea how it's going to happen. Some of you kids are in a relationship today that you know is a hopeless relationship. And you're finding yourself being pulled down deeper and deeper into Lodibar, this place of hopelessness. So whether you're in Lodibar by citizenship or whether you're there by choice or whether you're there by circumstances, there's hope. That's a good place for an amen. There's hope. And here's what it looks like. The Bible says, and the, well, he brought it, let me, I'm sorry, let me pause. He brought him out of Lodibar. He went and got him. Now, now let me pause here because I think this is very important. When horses came into Lodibar, it was never good news. Lodibar was not Southwest Acres. It was probably more likely located by Barnett Street. It was a place of poverty. Again, outcasts and outlaws. And when horses came, it was the law. The only question was, who were they after? And the horses stormed in the village that day. And everybody's going, who's, who's going today? And they stopped at the house where the little crippled boy was staying. Mephibosheth. They go into the house and they say, the king wants to see you. Now, what, again, what, what has Mephibosheth been taught? King hates you. He wants to kill you. You're crippled today because of the king. Thank you, dear preachers. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. But God is a God of love. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And some of you, perhaps on the sound of my voice on the radio, or even right here today, you're saying, man, I've been taught, God hates me. Have you seen the signs? God hates everybody. We saw it. You heard it, Judy. You heard it taught uh, on the on streets when they went down to, um, well, I can't remember where it was. 
uh, they were going somewhere, and people were, the preacher up there was preaching, God hates you, God hates you, God hates you, God hates you. He said, no wonder the world is confused. Now, God's holy, and there will be a time of God's wrath. And right now, if the truth was known, outside of God's grace, we deserve God's wrath. But, that day, they weren't there as agents of wrath. They were their agents of grace. And Mephibosheth, because he was crippled, could not do anything anyway. He had no choice but to go. So he goes. And then we come in to the next verse, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell down on his face and paid homage. That's what you'd expect. If you're a citizen today... Of Lodibar. God wants to bring you out. But before you can come out, you got to check your pride at the door. If you're still saying, yeah, well, God, I, God, I've done this and God, I've done that, then you're perhaps not ready to leave Lodibar. But when you're finally ready to fall down your face before God and pay homage and say, God, I'm here. And God, I acknowledge the fact that I've sinned against you. And God, I acknowledge that my sin is wrong. And God, I'm ready for a change. Then God is ready to bring you out of Lodibar. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, who are there by choices, a little humility is in order. You've got to quit making excuses for your choices. You've got to be able to come before God and say, God, I have sinned against you and there is no excuse. I'm ready to leave that place like the prodigal son. I'm ready to come home. If you're there because of circumstances, all God wants you to say is, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. God just wants you to declare your dependence on Him. God, my circumstances are so much bigger than me. There's only one person who can handle it. And God, it is you. And you're going to find an amazing embracement of grace when you do. So, Mephibosheth goes before David expecting the worst and gets the best. Can I say that again? Mephibosheth goes before David expecting the worst and getting the best. And friend, I'm going to tell you, that's how it is with God. We go to God and we expect the worst, but He's got the best for us through His grace. Let's see what it says. Behold, I am your servant. But David said to him, do not fear. Say those words with me. Do not fear. Say it again. Do not fear. The, the gospel message is do not fear. I talked about this at Revival this week at Heron First. I've shared it with you before. You know, before sin, before sin in the garden, they walked together with God. In the cool of the evening, God would come down and walk. But once they sinned, they hid in the bushes. God says to Adam, where are you? I'm hiding in the bushes. Why are you doing it in the bushes? I'm afraid. Sin is the agent of fear. Grace is a fear killer. That's a good place for an amen. 
You don't have to be afraid. I'm here to extend grace, not judgment. God says today to the citizens of Lodibar, I'm here to extend grace to the ones who have made poor choices, are making poor choices. I'm here to extend grace. And the ones whose heart is broken, and, and there's some things about God you don't understand right now, He says, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to extend grace. And here's what that looks like. I'm going to show kindness for the sake of your father, John. Now, now, now Mephibosheth, this is not about you. This is not because you're crippled in your feet. You deserve a better life now. This isn't about because life is hard for you. I'm going to extend a little grace and mercy your way. This is all about your daddy. And I told your daddy, I made a covenant with your daddy that I would show kindness. And do you understand, brothers and sisters, today, it's not about us. It's about God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand we ain't got any part in it? Do you understand we can't earn it? We can't show favoritism, earn God's favoritism? It's all about this Roman cross. Do you understand all we can do is receive what Jesus Christ did? Do you really understand that? Do you really get it? I mean, I'm telling you guys, we've got, we've got to get over the fact that, that somehow God owes us because we're good boys and girls. He owes us nothing. He didn't owe us salvation. It was grace. About your daddy, son. It's not about you. You're going to benefit from it. But it's all about your daddy. Here's what I want to do. I want to restore to you. This is so rich. What Satan had stolen in the Garden of Eden, God wants to restore. Come on now. What Satan had stolen in the Garden of Eden, God wants to restore. He wants to restore relationship and fellowship with you, the Father. Those you had met made bad choices in your life. You're in low you are by choices. God wants to restore, not the relationship. You didn't lose your salvation. He wants to restore the fellowship. He wants, as the prodigal son, to put the robe, Judy, you talked about, to put the robe on, to kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. My child has come home. And those of you who, who are in those horrible, hard circumstances right now, oh, He wants to restore. It was never God's plan for this world to be so messed up. Sin did that. But we serve the God of new creations. And what Satan kills, God can bring to life and restore. Can I have an Amen. Listen here, listen, broken marriages, broken relationships with children, broken relationships right here in our church body, a broken world, God can restore through grace, through grace. Every one of these dollars, did you get it, are going to go to the mission field. And we're just not feeding people to make them fat. We're not trying to send fat people to hell. We're trying to fatten them up and tell them that Jesus loves them, and then they will know more about the Jesus and the God's grace that I'm talking about. That's the plan. That's the plan. I, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall, you shall eat at my table. Whoa, whoa, time out. Do you understand? Yeah, 
Mephibosheth says, you understand what you're saying, David? Now you're going to give me, no, you're not going to kill me. That's pretty good news. But you're going to restore to me my dad's property. And whoa, whoa, whoa. You want me to come live in the palace and eat at your table? And then he, he says it. He paid homage again, fell down again. I won't get down again. I'm too old. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? May I propose to you today that every believer in Jesus Christ should have those words on our lips? We must remember, what did God save us from? We were reprobate sinners. And He saved us. And we should pose this question, God, how in the world could you, now, how could you extend such grace to me? It'll change our way of thinking. Things that matter now won't matter then. I love this. How how can these things be? Well, son, I told you it wasn't about you. Matter of fact, David probably agreed. You really are much of a dead dog. But it's not about you. It's about your daddy. It's about me. It's a covenant. It's the blood. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about God the Father. And it's about grace. Now I told you Zeba was an interesting person. He was, a, he was the, the steward of Saul's estate. That's one. Let me try to get him here for you. Um, he had it pretty good. He enjoyed prosperity because Mephibosheth, the sole heir, was living in hideout. So whatever the farm produced, who got it? Who got it? Zeba. So Zeba had it pretty good. All right? He was the steward. He had it pretty good. And the last thing was, he stood to lose the most. Now look what it says. Then the king called Zeba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. How do you think that went over? Uh huh. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, now Ziba didn't have a small family. He had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. But I'm going to give you a hint because you probably won't ever hear the end of the story. He did it very reluctantly. He didn't much care for Mephibosheth because when he came back in the scene, then guess what? He lost. Can I just give you a word of side warning? Never should the church be Zeba. I know we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. We insist on having an invitation, which we should do, and every service inviting people to come. But do you understand something? When Mephibosheth was restored... His redemption cost Zeba. And redemption will cost the church. A church that really is going to be a soul-saving station. A church that's going to put lostness before comfort. A church that will put mission dollars before budget dollars. It's going to cost. And God wants us to be a grace-filled church. Not a Zeba church. As more and more lost people are saved and coming to the church, they bring in some crazy habits and we have to wrestle those down and figure those out. But God wants us to be a grace 
church, not a Zeba church. Because later on, Zeba turns on Mephibosheth and lies about him to David. I'll try to get that story to you sometime. It's crazy. Then we close up with this. So Mephibosheth, us, that's a place for an amen. So Mephibosheth, that's us, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that good? That really is, Brent. Do you understand? We could eat, man, we could eat at the king's table. Not because we deserve it, but because he said so. Now, see, I know a lot of y'all don't have sin in your life. Y'all are pretty spiritual. But us unspiritual people, we think this is really good news. We, I'm sorry, we get to eat at the king's table. Woo, come on now. You let that soak in. You thought what you did last week and God saw and I didn't see? You're going to eat at the king's table because of God's amazing grace. Good stuff. It gets better. It gets better. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and who all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Now, here's what's cool. Because of the grace of God and Mephibosheth's life, he later had a son. And that son had four sons. And Jonathan's house carried on because of the faithfulness of God. Listen, Mephibosheth wouldn't have much of a legacy. But because of God's amazing grace, he did. And no matter how far you are down in Lodi Bar, I'm telling you, one, God can bring you out, and two, He can write you a brand new past, He can write you a brand new future, and He can give you a legacy that you can be proud of. Satan will tell you, you're too old, you sin too much, there's too much damage. Lie, lie, lie. God can change the past, God can change the future, and God can change your legacy. Woo! Amen, preacher. Amen. That's just the kind of God He is. You can't. Some of the stories y'all written, if it's up to y'all, this story's done over. The end, and it was not a bestseller. But God can do it. But you've got to be willing to leave Lodibar. But Thibosheth, if he'd have said, tell the king thanks but no thanks. I'm not sure he had that option. But if he said thanks, but no thanks, he would still be hiding under a table and Lodibar wondering when the king was going to come and kill him. You have to leave Lodibar. And when you leave Lodibar and, best God, and, and embrace God's grace and God's grace embraces you, honey, things are just not the same. So Mephibosheth... Lived in Jerusalem. How's that for a change? Y'all aren't excited enough. This is good stuff. He lived in Jerusalem. For he always, he ate always at the king's table. It wasn't a temporary seat. Now watch this. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now someone's got to say, well, how's that way to end the story? Anybody got any ideas? It might make a better sermon if I can end it better. I know. I think I know. Well, wouldn't that be good if God healed the feet? You know, center pop. No, I think there's something better. 
he experienced God's grace. And God healed Mephibosheth, but left the scar. And the scar was those two lame feet. Now, why would he do that for? I'll tell you why. Because God knows our propensity to forget about grace. Let me give you a picture. Every evening, by this now, he's got people who carries him. He's sitting there, and he's got his little thing to carry him in. And they carry him up to the table. And as they're carrying him, he's reminded, I don't deserve to be here. I was damaged goods. But because of God's amazing grace, I'm going to tuck these... (laughs) I'm going to tuck these crippled feet under the king's table. Ain't nobody going to see them. They're going to give me a say, He's royal. He's not damaged. And I'm going to eat the king's table. That's us, guys. Yes, God sometimes leaves the scars. Sometimes it's a reminder of His covenant. Sometimes it's a reminder of His amazing grace. And I'm telling you, boy, Mephibosheth had a story to tell. When they were carrying, how did you lose your legs? How did your leg quit working? Well, let me tell you my story. Listen, some of us have got some scars, but those scars are scars of grace. Tell your story. Tell your story. Oh, listen, there's a world out there who needs this message. They need to know that no matter how damaged they see themselves as, that God's grace really is Sufficient. So if you're here today, real quick, if you're here today, my brother Brent's going to be standing down front. And we don't want to tell you about religion, and we don't want to tell you about rules, but we do want to tell you about God's amazing grace. We want to tell you how we've experienced it and how you can experience it also. And His grace is bigger than anything you've done. If you're in Lodi Bar today, you made some bad choices. Let me tell you something. Don't you believe Satan. Satan will tell you you have to stay there. You do not have to stay there. God's grace is coming for you to bring you out of Lodi Bar and to restore you, to restore what's broken in your life by God's amazing grace. And if you're there by circumstances, hold on, my child. Joy comes in the morning. It's joy's coming in the morning. Listen, this is not all there is. God fixes some things here. The pain sometimes are going, but God fixes some things here. But there's coming a place called heaven where it's going to be all fixed. It's all going to be fixed there. It's all going to be fixed there. We more than anything want you to experience. In church, let me just close this thought again. Please, let's be a grace church. Let's don't be a Zeba church. Don't, let's don't, don't, as we meet for our budgets to, Sorry, finance committee. But we need for a budget. It shouldn't be our concern about budget. Can be, how can we be a grace church? As we have Sunday school class, how can we be a grace class? When we worship, how can we make this an environment of grace? So people can come in and feel and embrace and know that God is calling them out of Lodi Bar to a place at his table. Let's pray. Oh, God, you're good. In fact, you're somewhere beyond good. Thank you, God, for including this wonderful story in your Old Testament. Father, thank you. That's not up to us. It's not up to us. Jesus, you did it all. All we have to do is say yes to your invitation today. For my friends who have citizenship in this horrible place called Lodi Bar, 
Bring them out by your grace even today. For my brothers and sisters have choices that's holding them in Lodibar. God, let your grace bring them out today. And for my brothers and sisters who are hurting in a place of Lodibar because of circumstances beyond their control, just put your healing grace on them and start putting back together broken hearts and broken lives. You are so good. Have your amazing way in this invitation time. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen.